I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I start today with a disclaimer. The first half of my talk this morning will be a bit of a biblical study. And if Bible study is not your thing, be gentle with me, as this background is vital to what I feel I want to bring to our attention this morning. If Bible study is your thing, don't get so caught up in the background material that you find yourself avoiding the invitation that transcends the study. Since September the 4th, almost all of our New Testament readings have been from the Gospel of Luke. This will continue until the beginning of Advent. The only exceptions are or were Thanksgiving last week and the bishop's visit in November. And supporting Old Testament references have tended to be from the prophetic books, Jeremiah, Daniel, and a little of Lamentations. And while we often think the prophetic books are about the future, they are actually about the present and how we act in the present might affect the future. So they keep us connected with the tradition and yet always inviting us to something new and bigger in the gospel and in our current lives. And no gospel has more has a more expansive view of God and Jesus than the book of Luke. Luke is an invitation to us to notice those places that if we go there, God seems bigger. Luke is often called the loveliest book in the world. The pastor theologian William Barclay calls Luke the best life of Christ ever written because it is the most vivid, he says. There is even a tradition that Luke was a well-known and accomplished painter. And there is a famous painting of Mary in a Spanish cathedral that is said to have been painted by him. His gospel is certainly the most colorful and artistic. And unlike the authors of the other three gospels, Luke was a Gentile, not Jewish, and he primarily wrote to a non-Jewish audience. And so I think it's somewhat astonishing that his gospel even made it into our scriptures. He was a doctor by profession, which gave him a somewhat unique perspective. There's an old saying. A minister sees people at their best, a lawyer sees people at their worst, and a doctor sees people as they are. Not sure that's always true, but there is a truism there that tells us how the writer of Luke saw humanity in their relationship to the divine. And Luke's distinctives are especially poignant for his time and perhaps for our time. First of all, he was educated and articulate. His usage of the Greek language reflects his capacity as a wordsmith. His book comes across as not only well-written, but also well-researched. Secondly, he wrote primarily for non-Jews. There is nothing in his writing that a Gentile reader would find strange or stereotypically Jewish. No Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. His dating is based on Roman calendar, not on a Jewish calendar. He very seldom quotes the Old Testament, and he always gives Hebrew words their Greek equivalents to help his reader understand. He never uses the word rabbi when referring to Jesus. Rather, he uses the term master. 
And when he traces the descent of Jesus, he doesn't go back to Abraham, but back to Adam, the metaphorical founder of the whole human race. And all of this makes his gospel the easiest of all the gospels to read. It's written for people of all backgrounds. Thirdly, Luke is especially a gospel of prayer. Even our text today begins with his invitation. It's a parable about our need to pray always and to not lose heart. And Luke carries a special approach to prayer. It's sort of like a Monty Python prayer that my son used to pray. Thank you, God, for being so big and huge. And in all the great moments of Jesus' life, Luke has Jesus praying before any major event, usually praying in nature, by a river, on a mountain, in the wilderness, in a garden, usually alone and away from it all, in the natural world, the significance of which I think we have lost. And I will say more about this later. Fourthly, Luke is also the gospel of women. The place of women in his time was below low. In the Jewish morning prayer, the Jewish man started our thank God that he was not born a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And relative to this, Luke gives a much higher place to women. Jesus' birth is told from Mary's point of view. Luke alone tells us about Elizabeth or of the widow of Maine and of the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus, emphasizing a deep respect and affection that Jesus had for women and children. Luke's picture of Mary and Martha and Mary of Magdalene demonstrate this vivid connection and respect for women. And Luke was likely a native of Macedonia, which is in northern Greece, a more emancipated city where women held prominent roles in the city. Fifthly, <clears throat> Luke is a gospel of praise. He was filled with awe, radical amazement, as Abraham Joshua Heschel says. Three great hymns of the church emerge from his text. The Magnificat, Mary's song, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. The Benedictus, Zacharias' song, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. And what's called the Nunc Dimittis. Simeon's song as he held the infant Jesus. My eyes have seen your salvation. However, sixthly, the most vivid characteristic of Luke is that his is a universal gospel. It exudes inclusivity, not just for all the reasons already mentioned. Luke's Jesus is for everyone, without any distinction or exception. He has a good Samaritan. He has a grateful leper who is a Samaritan. And the Gospel of John can say that Jews should not have any dealings with Samaritans, but Luke is absolutely inclusive of everyone. His Jesus quotes women, approves of Gentiles, uses Naaman the Assyrian as an example, and a Roman centurion is praised for his faith. And he summarizes this inclusivity when he says, They shall come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. This is not only ecumenical, it's interfaith. 
And to emphasize this inclusivity, Luke's gospel is supremely interested in the support of the poor and the disenfranchised. Matthew's Jesus tells the disciples to not go to the Samaritans and Gentiles, but Luke omits all of that. In the other Gospels, John the Baptist says, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert the highway for our God. Only Luke adds, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Flesh. All living things. In summary, more than in the other Gospels, Luke sees no limit to the love of God. He must have been a lovely soul. And the sequence of parables, both before today's and after, display this inclusive and endlessly gracious God. Ultimately, when Jesus is grilled by the Pharisees about when the kingdom of God is going to come, he answered, the kingdom of God isn't going to come by counting the days or predicting them on a calendar, nor when someone says, look here or look there, and why? Luke's Jesus says, because the kingdom is already among you. It's everywhere. See it everywhere. Notice it. And in our text today, the unjust judge is the antithesis of this. He doesn't fear God, doesn't care about people. He's a narcissist. He sees himself as the ultimate authority of his life and is indifferent to anyone that doesn't see him as the ultimate authority in their lives. He only satisfies the widow's request for justice because she's so persistent, a persistent woman. Not out of a sense of injustice, but out of a sense of his own self-serving comfort. He's the, sense of, he's the center of his universe. In fact, the text almost ironically suggests that he's a little afraid of her. She's so tenacious and so strong that he's afraid she's going to slap him in public and embarrass him. Fear of God. It's not about being afraid of God, although it can include a sense of awe. The fear of God is a recognition of the universal expansiveness and inclusivity of God. It's humbly thanking God for being so big and huge rather than making yourself the ultimate authority on being right and wrong or or your authority on being about truth. And ironically, even this narcissist is used by God to bring justice to the widow. He has no awareness of that. I just want to get her out of my hair. And it is this fear of God as the recognition of God's universal expansiveness that I want to talk about in this text, embodied in the words, how much more will God grant justice, love, and mercy to those who continue to call out to him, who daily acknowledge his universal expansiveness and inclusivity. Two weeks ago, I joined a pilgrimage held at the Sereno Center. It was four days of walking, hiking, reflecting on life in nature in some of the most beautiful examples of the created order. We often walked and talked, but we also walked for long periods of silence. And after the periods of silence, I noticed a deeper significance in our conversation. I'm still wondering what that was about. Something about walking together with friends in silence 
and then beginning conversations changes the tenor of those conversations. And occasionally we stopped and were guided in short meditative prayer practices. We listened to a wonderful Aboriginal storyteller telling us unique and beautiful stories about his culture's connection to the creation and to the Creator. We became engrossed in the return of the salmon to the Adams River as a metaphor for the great cycle of life, how nature provides for us, and how fragile that provision is, especially now because of the threat of human-caused climate change. And in one of our meditations, Phil, one of our facilitators, quoted the poet Mary Oliver with an invitation that journeyed with me all day and continues to journey with me now. And three, three thoughts jumped from her poetic words. Pay attention, be astonished, and talk about it. And I sometimes feel that those of us in Christendom have forgot the first two. We just want to talk about it. <laughs> to heck with paying attention or being astonished. And perhaps that is the meaning of the words repent. Learn again to pay attention, to be astonished before you talk about it, because you will talk differently. Repeat after me. Pay attention. Be astonished. And now talk about it. We tried to hold those words as we walked in silence in the created order. And as I sought to take in the text and subtext of our pilgrimage in the natural world, I was reminded that the universe is the Creator's first revelation and has been there from the beginning. Perhaps that is why Jesus so often went into the natural world, away from all that we humans have created, to just sit with the things that God created, what Richard Rohr calls the givens. We so easily become preoccupied with the things that we have created, how to get more of them, how to keep the ones we have, remembering or forgetting that everything we create is created from the givens, the things that God has made. And to recognize this is the fear of God, the natural humility that is our reality. And as our ancestor Paul suggests in Romans 1, everything, not just a little bit, everything that can be known about God is made plain in the things that God has created. It's been there for millions of years. For us as Christ believers, our scriptures are the second revelation, significant, but only here for 3,000 or fewer years. And we have lived as if God, the Creator, didn't say anything before that. Science suggests that our universe is at least three billion years old. I still ask what was there before that, but nonetheless. And we have lived as if God, the Creator, didn't say anything before our scriptures came around. As I listened to the cycle of the salmon juxtaposed to the aboriginal voices, the storytelling, I found myself wondering why much of Christendom has lived if our scriptures were the first and only revelation. Perhaps we assumed they were prescriptive rather than descriptive. And because it was prescriptive, it gave us settlers 
the right and command to subdue and subject peoples and lands into our prescriptive control. We use the revelation to justify our agenda, not to understand God's divine longing given in the first creation. Might our colonial temptations have been pacified if we had read the second revelation through the lens of the first, the natural order, the land? If we read our scriptures through the lens of God, of the God of the natural world, might the now perceived evils of our crusades, residential schools, racial preoccupation, etc., not have developed into our misplaced ideas of right and wrong? And in separating ourselves from the natural world, perhaps we lost the balancing humility of our place in this great ecosystem. So all this to say that for me, pilgrimage in the natural world continuously provides a context, a hermeneutic, through which to see our scriptures with all that can be known about God, the Creator, as being plain in the things that God has made. Without that connection, our scriptures took us to conquest, power, pride, presumption, etc., etc., etc. Perhaps a deeper connection with the created order would also give us a context in which to see truth, goodness, and beauty now, not just in hindsight. Confession, reconciliation, and forgiveness are wonderful. However, wouldn't it be wonderful if they weren't necessary? Might a greater connection with the first revelation of God, the creation, keep us humble enough to more easily see our temptation to use our scriptures to promote our agenda rather than the divine longing. So Luke's call, together with Jesus' example of praying alone in the natural world, invite us beyond the prideful and self-serving narcissism of our current and historic world. This interpretation of the scriptures through the lens of things that God has made invites us beyond the prideful and self-serving narcissism of our human experience. We live humbly with our God. The scriptures read through the lens of creation take us back to the garden, a place where we are confronted by both the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And without that connection, we will continue to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, endlessly arguing and fighting about who's right and who's wrong, who's in and who's out. Luke's call echoes Jesus' invitation to look beyond the prideful and self-serving narcissism of the world we live in. Instead, pay attention to those places where you see loving action in the world. Right here, in the mess. That is where that kingdom is among us. Be astonished by that, rather than just shocked at all that is messed up. And spend more time talking about that, loving action, than about all our grievances. And so I leave us with the wonderful words from Mary Oliver. Pay attention, be astonished, and then talk about it. For this is the fruit of the tree of life. Amen.